if I can tune in or train my own body as a instrument, I can gain greater insight into uh, my environment and my being. It's about directionality and it's an active way of learning. Hello and welcome to Farm On, the podcast. I'm Joe Phillips and today I'm joined by Vanessa Beck. Hi Joe. thanks for having me. Um, I, you know, it's been great hanging out with you at the farm and thanks for inviting me to, uh, to come along and um, interview Nancy. Um, so yeah, today we're interviewing a really special guest. Her name's Nancy Clem, and we'll talk about her in a second. But first of all, I just want to point out for the listeners, if they didn't notice that you are from New Zealand. I am. And um, they have a lot of weeds in New Zealand, from what I understand. We do, um, and you can eat weeds. Yes, you can. And the reason that we are talking about weeds is that you and I got to see this really amazing documentary about today's guest, Nancy Clem. Um, it was called Weed Eater. Nancy is the person that stands out from the movie. Obviously, it's, it's about her, but it's about um, this environment that we live in and that we can, you know, there's things around us that we can actually eat. Um, and it was also just around everything that Nancy does from um, composting through to soil remediation through to mushrooms um, and just the story of you know, who she is and her life and her communication with nature. Um, and we were just so impressed with that. So uh, one of the things that really impressed me about Nancy is that she, she has a lot of technical proficiency, but she also um, kind of embodies the work with this like kind of holistic, artistic approach, almost the way like, like a poet would. Yeah, she really does. And she has that experience, um, which you will um, talk about in a moment, about um, this tree and just that really connect, that moment that she has, you know, really connects her to nature and magic. And here it is. I was cramming uh, last night, in fact, trying to read everything that has been written about you, which I failed miserably at, but... Um, I stumbled on this, which tied into something that you were just talking about, and maybe it'll like kick us off in a, some direction. Um, you said, about 15 years ago, I had my first loud and explicit communication from a plant. It was a pine tree that called to me, an 800-year-old pine that I encountered while in Ireland. It was spring, and I approached it as it was encompassed in a buttery halo. I realized upon closer inspection it came from puffs of pollen flowing out in clouds from its multitude of male flowers. I put my hand on its deeply flaked bark and it held me. I could not move my hand and I didn't want to. It poured itself into me, filling me like a river. Oh, I hear your message, I told it silently. And the strength of its flow made me start to cry. So... Um, what do you remember from that experience? <laughs> you bringing that up makes me want to cry. Um, so I've always been sensitive to nature, but I, and people said, so what do you, what do you think the plants want? And I always thought, well, that's, you know, that's cool. That's very Findhornian of you. Um, but, um, at that moment I was like, oh, I just gained access. Hmm. It was like, I was like initiated hmm. And it was shocking, but it had to come from a really ancient being mm-hmm. to get through my hard-headedness. How old were you when that experience oh. happened? Yeah, uh, late 30s. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
And I had already been gardening and designing people's gardens for like 15 years. So, <laughs> And earlier you were um, talking about a, a camp that you're launching at your land, your property. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were connecting it to this idea of deep listening. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would love it if you could talk about that again. Well, I'm going to talk about deep listening outside of the context of what it was created of why I'm interested in it because it is it is a whole practice that was created by um, this woman who's been recently deceased who's recently deceased um, died in January of this year named Paulina Laveris and she was a composer and she really believed in expanding her repertoire of listening to develop her um, experimental compositions. But my interest in it is uh, more like um, how I want to learn or how I want to be taught by things around me that already have a greater wisdom than I do. Um, And so if I can tune in or train my own body as a as a instrument to tune into certain things, I can, I can gain greater insight into uh, my environment and my being and how it relates to the environment. So in some ways, it's not necessarily, it's about directionality and it's an active way of learning um, in the sense of being very, uh, opening up your receptivity to what's around. Is there a connection explicitly to spiritual practices like Buddhism or is, or is that just, do, do you just see a commonality between those practices? Well, it's about presence. And, um, and so I think there's, it's not a direct connection for me, although I, I draw from Buddhism um, personally, but I also draw from a, a few other things. Mm-hmm. Um and but it's about the pre- what it means to be present and participatory in that presence. Being fully present isn't just being present to respond; it's about present presence to be penetrated by what's around you. It sounds like an awesome camp. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna mix it up. We're gonna do a lot of quiet activities in the okay. morning where everybody's kind of can do that. And then, um, and then there's some, uh, and then there's land-based restoration work. We're going to be working on in the afternoon, so people can kind of work it out through their mm-hmm. bodies. Um, and then we're doing kind of formal presentations at night by different folks coming in, mm-hmm. an acoustical ecologist that that records landscapes, and wow. somebody else who works on deep mapping, which is a process that I'm interested in as well, and um, and somebody from the Indigenous Environmental Network. We're also asking some of our participants who sh- who have signed up to do short presentations on some really great things they're involved with. And so we have a, a learning cooperative um, that someone's presenting on and somebody else is presenting on a, a naturalist program that she runs with um, young women. And so we're, we're going to have time to have the participants also present mm-hmm. on their work. And this is your own property, which is in the driftless, the driftless region of um, still in Illinois, not quite in Wisconsin. Um, and if anybody's hiked or spent time in the driftless region, it's quite.
beautiful and very different from the plains down here. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so you were talking about um, actually penetration just then, allowing things to, you know, engulf you or be a part of you. And I, when we were at um, watching um, the documentary you were in, somebody asked around... Um, eating weeds that were on the side of the road, you know, could that poison them? And you talked around, you were like, hey, but you've got skin and skin is also taking in all of that stuff. And I don't know if this is one of your questions as well, but um, you seem to like to put things in your mouth to experience stuff, which I find really interesting because <laughs> I t- tend to bite on things as well. And I'm like, oh, someone else does that. Like, I, was, I, I was cleaning out the beehives and every single thing in that beehive I put into, well, not except someone, for the black except for the black gooey stuff. <laughs> but, um, so you've got this kind of idea of how to experience the world through that, like um, you know, eating the bile of mushrooms that you were talking to us around. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to just expand on how you experience the world like that? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I'm pretty kinetic. And so um, the idea of, I mean, I really do see my body as a tool. So if I can, I can sense something energetically, but I can also, I really like to feel that texture and the weight of things in my and I actually like to guess that before I even pick it up like anticipate it or um color and taste it's like all very vibrant to me so I like to I realize that it by I can look at something and speculate about it and then I can taste it and see if that matches up to what my eyes brought in but it's also something I almost do automatically so I am somebody who as a little kid in the store was always touching things to check them out mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Told not to do. yeah like just and then just touching fabric and then pretty soon I trained myself to like know the feels of certain things without having to touch but now I'm inviting myself back to touch and explore mm-hmm. because when we were talking even it happened yesterday um there was a, a East Indian presenter uh, entomologist that presented the bee forum and he was talking about um, the difference between science big S and science's small S's or these me- scientific methodologies um, as opposed to the high science. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. so he's kind of break, trying to break out of his silo, but he what he did is he joined up with a sociologist to, to break down what's happening with honeybees mm-hmm. um, and understanding that the... What's happening with the honeybees comes from a broader context, a social context, a political context, and a cultural context, and he went into that. So one of the things he he was talking about, like how do we broaden our siloed perspectives or how do we break our own, you know, how do we like go into the peripheries? Decompartmentalize our brains and yeah, and just like and what's happening at, at, at our peripheral vision because that those are things that we're not. You know, most things in front of us we know or we're navigating and learning to know, but there's some a lot of unknown things that we keep out of our visions or out of the things that we do every day. And how do we, how do we explore those? Because we might come to um, more, uh, more, more complex understanding of of the problem and 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 perhaps even better approaches to the problem. And you're you're a permaculturist, and they like to call it um, the marginal, like valuing the marginal, because yeah. that's where all the act, that's where all the activity is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so he, so anyway, um, so I got in a conversation with him at lunchtime and talked about the role of citizen science 
um, in the world of science and that many scientists don't want to bridge into the, into the world that I occupy, but because I have a fair amount of science literacy, um, I actually do work with scientists because scientists are giving me the hard metrics to, mm-hmm. to back up my bioremediation work. Um, so people, can, so we're more believable while we expand broader histories and um, and do more of the biological work. So this idea of even understanding soil, if I put out a bunch of soil and people look at it, they'll they'll engage with it in like in less than a second. Mm-hmm. But I could draw out that engagement for several hours with a fair amount of trickery. I would call it where I, I get people involved and interested in looking and feeling and touching and tasting. So they actually start building a vocabulary of soil. So they can actually just look at soil and and speculate what issues there could be just structurally or biologically in the soil, maybe even chemically, um, based on what they have seen because they've had so many experiences I had a friend who did a sommelier training. It sounds like sommelier for soil yeah. eaters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it is it is like that. So you are building a language to talk about things. And so if you approach it from just a, if you approach soil from just a chemical standpoint and, and read about it chemically, you're only going to st- understand X. You're not going to understand uh, necessarily how that soil supports plants. It's not going to talk about oxygen levels. It's not going to talk about, you know, composites or or even the um, quality of their organic matter in it. So yeah. a lot of it does come from smelling and tasting and touching and all sorts of qualitative methods. And so I actually, we work through like 10 different qualitative methods and then marry that to a soil, a chemical soil test. And then I teach people how to break down as a chemical soil test so it's not like just like this crazy bunch of numbers right. that they were given. Um but yeah, so I, I do believe in the body as a very important tool that increasingly is less and less trained or even recognized yeah. as a tool. Well, I think in your, Vanessa, your question, I remember that moment too at the film screening because somebody asked the kind of elephant in the room question like, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I don't know if it's okay to eat like weeds that I find in the city because, you know, there's like lead and stuff and, and you're response was like physical like you like you jumped from one part of the stage kind of situation you jumped from one part to the other and did this like kind of modern dance thing and you were like you were like you were like but we're just we're porous you know and we we're just we're breathing in the world and we need to and uh that's a really powerful thing though that people need to like that really hit that really struck a chord with me that there's because Everything that you were just talking about with soil science is intellectual, mm-hmm. but then there's just the experiencing things through your body that sometimes you can't even talk about. You just have to do it, right? And you trust those responses. It's 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 kind of no different from how you interact with your lover or something. Is like you. There's a reason that that person is close to you, and and. And so, and you, and you sense that and you know that. And, um, so yeah, the porosity is not only just with our breathing through our nose and mouths, but it's like even the porousness of our eyes, like things go into us and things travel, Mm. communication comes out of it, our ears, and then the largest organ of our body is our skin, which is highly porous. And it's, Mm. so 
if we are going to school next to next to a highway, we actually are breathing in that highway. Mm-hmm. We don't have to go out and lick mm-hmm. the exhaust pipe of a car because we're essentially doing that anyway mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. just by being present. Mm-hmm. So that question of like, do we pick something off the street? It's like, yeah, you can pick something off the street and it's your own jurisdiction where you pick, understanding that we don't know what's in this in the soil there and some of it's going to be stored in its roots, some of it in the top, in the herbal part of the plant. Um, and then there's things that could be falling from above above ground on that plant yeah. that could be a problem as well. Yeah. Deposition from, again, from cars or factories or dogs or whatever. To me, it seems like there's like an active switch where you're suddenly saying like, well, I'm just going to engage with my environment and be knowledgeable to some level based on my own experience rather than just sort of... So one of the environmental engineers I'm working with, uh, we've had a long conversation about PAHs, which are those... Um, chemicals that are like benzo and then like 20 letters and benzo and other 20 letters and that other benzo has another 20 letters and there's about 30 of them or so uh, of these compounds and they're um, polyaromatic hydrocarbons sounds bad it's bad and we have a lot of them in the city mm-hmm. and they're no fault of in some cases they're a fault of someone but in a lot of cases they're just fault of how we live yeah and post-industrial revolution. And we have really, really high levels in all our cities. And um, when they do cleanup levels, the standard at which they clean it up is um, the bar is not so high. Hmm. It's pretty low because they want, they actually, um, we, we there's a certain level of acceptance we only can clean so much because hmm. we are going to be, we are in. We are living with the contamination. Right. Yeah. So I think when people don't even realize that they're like, "Wait, I'm, I'm affluent. Mm-hmm. I went to an Ivy League school. I I do yoga. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about?" And, and you're like, "Yes, you too." <laughs> I changed the filters on my HVAC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, like, yes, you too. Your 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 skin is in the game, and you're part of you're part of. Yeah. Um, What's going? I mean, you're involved in what's happening as well, so you're part of this environment as well. And the legacy of this environment is uh, holds a lot of contamination. And so, I think people need to kind of um, the purity piece, or you know, everybody wants a positive relationship with food, so they're like homemade and organic mm-hmm. and homegrown, and all those things are really positive. But they also have to. It's a little bit of a it's a little reductionist to think like that. And, and I, I'm looking at kind of more, I'm more interested in the complexity, even if it's uncomfortable to, to manage. So I'm from New Zealand and, um, there we have, uh, the people have a great connection to the land. Um, before speaking at a, um, conference or a gathering, we give our mihi, which says, you know, this is my mountain and this is my river and, um, you know, what connection you have to the land and the people. Um, we call ourselves tangata whenua, which also means, you know, of the land, um, which I feel like, you know, you are of the land. Um, and then you also, um, you know, come into the city and live here as, as well um, or have to interact with this environment. Mm-hmm. So I was just wanting you to, you know, what is that, you know, when you go back to the land, is it just 
is there that feeling of oh yeah this is where it's where I'm meant to be this is you know such a deep connection to that and do you feel that that land particularly where you are um in the driftlands um driftless driftless it, did that call to you? Was that specifically? Well, I've been living it, in Little Village, which is west of Pilsen. Mm-hmm. I've been living there for over 20 years. And what I like about that neighborhood um, is the fact that people are very informally based. Like the culture is very informal. And a lot of people in Little Village own their own homes. Mm-hmm. And so you have several generations of homeowners and these extended families Um that socially are, I mean, they're very connected. And then they're Mexican, so they have a very strong food culture. So mm-hmm. people actually cook at home, mm-hmm. which a lot of people have lost, mm-hmm. in particularly in the city. So there's the cooking at home, and there's, like, the growing in anything you have, you know, b- b- buckets and jars and everything. It's just like mm-hmm. a, it's just full out, crazy amount of growing happening there um and a lot of people with really really deep skills around um livestock Mm. Uh, and so when i was looking for um a cheap place to buy and i went down to little village and everybody's saying hello to me because it's rude not to Mm -hmm. right (laughs) not to say hello Um, refreshing yeah yeah and i was like everybody's saying hello to me and i and i'm fluent in spanish as well and I was just watching looking at all this like a very kind of integrated like all their yards are like um, used no one's mm-hmm. just like it's not just like this thing back there that they walk through to throw out the right. garbage it's like this very very active space um, I was like oh yeah I really like this neighborhood and so I um, I'm there and I was one of the first white people in that area um, for many blocks and they would joke about me because I was this white woman living alone who was doing all this like campesina type activity, mm-hmm. this like farm based activity where I was, I, you know, all my animals and what I was planting and that I was dirty all the time. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they just, they, they didn't yeah, know what to make of you. They didn't know what to make of me, but yeah. then, um, but, but, at first, and then they're mm-hmm. just like, okay, she's uh, what I, I know, she's just part of what's going on here now. And mm-hmm. so, there's an, a certain level of acceptance um, that I have there. So, if you saw my place in Chicago, you'd see, uh, you know, a little village, you'd actually go, oh, this is totally makes sense that this is her house. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would know it from the outside, and you would know it mm-hmm. in the inside, and you would know it from the I could the walk yard. along and go, ah, oh, it's this one, yeah. without mm-hmm. even knowing the number. Yes. yes. Yeah, you would, <laughs> you would. You would see it. Um, so I kind of bring that sensitivity to that place, but I didn't... I wasn't interested in the house. I was interested in the land, in the yard. Mm-hmm. So the so the real estate agent was trying to show me the house, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I kind of like ran through the house and ran out the back door, <laughs> and I was like, started digging holes and looking at the soil and examining everything. And I'm like, this is perfect southern exposure, peach tree. Blah, 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 nice. blah. There's three junked cars here as well. I'll have to get those hauled off, but <laughs> you know, like that's. Anyway, so I live there, and so I bring a lot of my values to that place, and you would you would feel it if you were there. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you go back out to the land, which is every week, so I go mm-hmm. back and forth, um, which is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a mm-hmm. lot of logistics, but um, 
but driving in the car is kind of a good, a really good planning and thinking time and a self-reflective time. So I use it for that. Um, what's nice about my land is that driftless means it's not where the um, glaciers retreated and scraped it flat. So there's elevation change mm-hmm. of a fair amount from um, the front and back of my property. And, and I have everything from like a, just a skim of soil to really, really deep fluvial rich mm-hmm. soils. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so when I go out there and I see um, there are sandhill cranes that nest on my property and I have four fox dens and one part of my woods has the great horned owl. One other part of my woods has the barred owl. Wow. And I wake up every morning at about five o'clock, and I hear the turkeys coming out of the the oak trees, and wow. you know, and all they're like, oh gosh, oh gosh yeah. what are we going to go to today? Um, and I kind of hear them like rustle around a little bit at the edge of my property and move are they on. Wild, the wild turkeys. Yeah, wild turkeys. Those really big black yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah. Yes. There's about sixty of them that wow. hang out, and so. All these things, and I have um, I have animals out there, and so it's like all these things, and just waking up um, in a house, which actually is buried in a hill. Mm. So um, I only have meaning it's actually built into the hill. Yeah. Uh, so I only have one very long window. Did you design the house? Did you no. build it? No, it was it was, it was there. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> You're a toddler. Well, yeah, but it doesn't a look like that. <laughs> yeah. What's a troglodyte? Someone that lives in a cave. Okay. Yeah, it's a cave house, but it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it's not even close to Bilbo Baggins uh, okay. style. It's very like 1980s. Oh, yeah. yeah. Interesting. <laughs> but it's, um, so it's, yeah, it's like this long, long house um, with a couple of dark back rooms, but mostly it faces out. And I can actually watch the I can actually watch the night sky from my bed all night. So on full moon nights, I um, sleep on the couch so I can actually go to sleep because it's too bright. It's brilliant. <laughs> Amazing. So I'm like sometimes I'm coming out of the city and I feel like I'm breaking out of like mm-hmm. jail, mm-hmm. and I run out there and then I just and then I go out there and. Um, you know, socially, culturally, it's it's uh, very conservative. Mm-hmm. So I have to keep a low profile when I'm out there. But people kind of know I got something else going on. When I had 250 people show up and learn about mushrooms for a week on my property. And, mm-hmm. you know, people kind of know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're surrounded by um, industrial ag, essentially? Or is it yeah, more diverse softer, than that? Yeah, a softer version of that because of the... Um, because of the change in elevation, it's really, it's actually, there's... Harder to... It's plant. harder to plant, but they plant on the contour, but it's still harder to plant. There is a CAFO, a dairy nearby, so they, they do a lot of dairy. It's a Swiss area. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, it's kind of this, it's kind of nice. So I have a lot of, um, there's a lot of woods around me as well, and a lot of waterways. And historically speaking, it was one of the parts of, you know, the southern... Southwest Wisconsin, Northwest Illinois had a really has a really large land carrying capacity, meaning there's a lot of people can live on that land mm-hmm. because they had all these natural waterways and springs, so they could fish. Mm-hmm. And then there was great hunting grounds because of all the woodlands. Mm-hmm. And then there was prairie, so there was good agricultural mm-hmm. piece. So like the um, Ho Chunk people were had a, a really big encampment from Freeport into 
Cedarville and to where I am of like 35,000 people, which is actually a very large village for mm. an indigenous village because of the health of that land. You're, is it... Uh, is it close to Rockford or am I way yeah. off? No, west oh. of Rockford. Okay. 45 okay. minutes west. Okay. Yeah. Like one right. million okay, this one's not related to what we were just talking about. So do you want to keep on that thread? Um, it's just, a, it's kind of related. I'm okay. just making it related. Okay. So I get to talk. Make it. Um, <laughs> uh, I noticed you like to take your shoes off and have bare feet. Do oh. you feel like you, when when you're out there, do you, because we do that in New Zealand as well. If you walk into a workplace, we don't, nobody has shoes on. Um, right. And so we walk around in bare feet. Do you, is that something you do in your land and just to walk around in your bare feet and feel it? Yeah. And I, I actually don't allow shoes in my own house. And that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. And I, I'll, I'll have like a pile of, when I have a party, I'll have like a pile of socks for people. It's like, okay, take off your shoes, and if you need a pair of socks, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) here's a pair of socks. Good luck. (laughs) Pick your favorite pair. Um, (laughs) They don't even have to be a pair. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't, it's just something, yeah, it's something I've always have done, and um, yeah, to great embarrassment of like people who practice behind me in yoga. I mean, it's like, they're people like, what has she, where has she been? Mm They're, they're like handing you cards for pedicures. Like, <laughs> no, trust like, me, they're good. <laughs> a cheese grater to work on my yeah. <laughs> Well, um, so I, when I was in college in Oklahoma in art school, one of my professors was a Cheyenne Arapaho artist. And mm-hmm. I have this distinct memory. I hadn't thought of it since you, since we started talking about bare feet, but <laughs> we were all on a Monday morning going, hey, what did you do this weekend? Oh, I went to a party and blah, blah, blah. And uh, got around to him, and he's like, oh, I did some stuff with my son. And we were like, well, what did you do? He's like, oh, we took off our shoes, and we walked in some fields, you know, <laughs> to reconnect yeah. with the earth. And it was like it was like the record skipped off of the record, you know, and the yeah. crickets were chirping. And, you know, it's like, how do you even follow that up if you don't, if you're not even... It, in this space. Thinking of the world in yeah. those terms that, you know, you might need to feel things a little bit, you know. Yeah, and I liked sitting on the ground a lot, too. Um, it was really uncomfortable yesterday sitting in a conference all day in a chair. I got up and did a lot of forward folds and mm-hmm. knee, I, I just kept having to move. Um, but I like the I like to feel things through my feet, and I I... The feet had the map of the body on them, as reflexology believes, as, as well as the map of the body of our hands. And so I really believe in that opening and in acupuncture that's also a really vibrant space. Mm-hmm. These are very vibrant spaces of being ends of meridians. And so I, I, liked, I always like to take my shoes off. I know that you grew up on about 500 acres, mm-hmm. which I think it's really hard to get the scale of that as a human being like I can think of 500 acres like in combine mm-hmm. scale um, but really having that kind of space and area to explore and live in I, it's really hard for me even someone who grew up in the country to really wrap my head around so like thinking back when you were you know, a sentient being that has memories. Like, what was an average day like as a kid? We we had a lot of animals. 
And we had a horse and a pony and a donkey and a llama and goats and chickens and lots of dogs and cats. Like hobby stuff or just food production or what were you? Yeah, all the above, <laughs> living with animals. And so I still remember going out with my dad when I was really little um, and feeding uh, and taking care of all the animals. Like that was something he always took us to do. Um, and... My parents, I mean, my parents had me when they were really young and had my brothers when they were also very young. But we, Your brothers are older or younger? No, I'm the oldest. And then um, every two years, mm. another one. <laughs> but there's only three of us. It's not like a huge family. My mom, my mom and dad actually kept, didn't, couldn't have um, the, them a number of kids that they wanted. I think they wanted like seven. Mm. So three was enough, um, actually. <laughs> and we just, um, I still, my dad would put, um, you know, a uh, semi-truck load, which is eight, 18 cubic yards of sand in one of his 80-foot um, greenhouses, which he had close to 100 of those. And, and um, he'd dump it in there, and we'd have a winter sand pile that we played in. Oh. In the winter, <laughs> so he, you know, and um, yeah, and we were taught to solve our own problems. Um, Was this a homeschool situation, or what did no, you do? No, we went to public school. Oh. Um, and my dad's idea of church was always to um, just, you know, go for a long walk and get in the canoes and talk about the waterfowl and the. Mm-hmm. Um, algae in the pond and who was building who was you know just talk about who was building a den along the river or um, yeah so we were kind of taught to notice things and he's a horticulturalist and so he was um, would often bring uh, because he was a breeder he would bring in like 20 flowers that looked very similar Mm -hmm. And he'd make us look at them when we were kids mm-hmm. and talk about why we liked certain ones over the other ones. And then he'd make us name them. <laughs> and so we have a lot of flowers that we named when we were kids. Um, oh, not like know the name, but like actually name them yourself. Name them and introduce them to market. <laughs> so I guess I'm just going to name one of my top ones was... Um, my brother came up with screaming yellow zonkers. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he allowed us. He was. He, he allowed us to play on those on that kind of level and kind of in, in asked us to participate um, in business mm-hmm. in a way that I think most parents can't because they leave the house for their business and they might have like a visit mm-hmm. visit mom at work day. But we had every day we were. We were there. I remember spending a lot of time barefooted. I remember spending a lot of time in just my underpants. Mm-hmm. We just <laughs> ran around. And my parents are nowhere near hippie mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. They're really kind of middle of the road, mm-hmm. reasonable, very loving mm-hmm. people. Your folks still around? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're still working. <laughs> um, they run a, uh, two nurseries. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so I, I just remember 
a lot of that. And we and we ate a lot of stuff with that we grew. Mm-hmm. And so even when we got our two hours of television for the week, which my brothers and I would fight over what shows we picked, <laughs> we would have to shell peas as we watched our cartoons yes. or something like that. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, so it was all, I think it was just part of it. And when I came to the city, I was kind of shocked how people saw their properties as separate from the property next to it which there's influences, of course, ecological mm. influences, hydrological influences. There's sound, you know, breaks mm. the property line and mm. smells break the property line. Of course, sight does as well. And there's all sorts of, no one pays attention to property lines but real mm-hmm. estate agents. Mm. And so, right. and developers. They're and arbitrary. Unless they're super arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, it was like the most, it was like the strangest thing for me to, really as an adult come into consciousness around how people thought of land, which mm-hmm. was flat, um, very flat, like there's there's no land beneath your feet because it's just this flat surface and there's nothing mm-hmm. above it. It's just this weird territory to run over to get to someplace. Mm-hmm. And that we spent so much time sealing it off from mm-hmm. any kind of understanding or trees look like they're just like popping out of the sidewalk so how would you ever know that they actually needed anything more than mm-hmm. that little tiny square that they pop out of mm-hmm. you know like I was like really mm-hmm. um, baffled by that mm-hmm. and I studied anthropology so I'm, I was really interested in what are these cultural ways that we look at land mm-hmm. interested in ethnobotany and interested in just how we perceive land and how we culturally perceived land and and how that goes in different places, which is why I enjoy living in Little Village. Yeah, you're just yeah. talking then around, um, you know, lots of things that were in the city we've kind of lost a way of living or um, you were talking about um, shucking peas. I was talking to someone recently that didn't even know that that little pea comes out of the longer, you know, shell. Um, if there were, if you could choose one skill that American city dwellers should relearn, um, whether it's to like save the world or themselves or society or the earth, what would it be? As specific as shelling peas, you know, for example? Yeah. Like as yeah, specific just, as that? Yeah, as specific as that. Let's, let's have some more questions as I think about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're on the spot. This is good. Okay, it doesn't have to be one. Like, it could be like, well, I feel like we've lost so much um, mm-hmm. and, you know, people don't know how to mend. I'm teaching someone how to darn socks this week because they don't know how to fix the hole in their sock. You yeah, know, what I, are these things that you think we should relearn? I think embodiment. Yeah. And I think if we can understand where our bodies are in space and really get sensitive to that because, you know, often I teach a lot and I'm and I, as I'm delivering information, I'm trying to like um, take down your defenses with humor and outrageous things that I say. Um, and oh, it's a bit performative, but um, having beer face and yeah, leaping, leaping. I do. I'm very yeah. But um, even just watching people pick up a shovel, mm-hmm. full grown adults pick up a shovel, and I tell them to dig a hole, and I'm just like appalled. Mm-hmm. And how they're using their body to do something. Mm-hmm. So I just like, I could say, yeah, dig a hole with a shovel. I could answer that way. But I think in, in a, a broader care category mm-hmm. would be uh, embodiment. Because even when you teach someone to mend, it's like 
how to thread a needle. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'll, I'll come up with something better, more specific. But but, but it's kind of like what you were saying before <laughs> about that um, taking the world in with everything. Like you're, oh, the embodiment thing is like seeing, seeing how okay you've got a. How you're part of something. Yeah, how you're part of something and how, you know, now you've got this earth that you're about to break or whatever and, and really seeing and feeling and experiencing. Yeah. That ties into a question I was going to ask. <laughs> um, and I'll start with a short story that um, my wife and I were hiking in Michigan, like southwestern Michigan, just around the lake from Chicago. And it was a chilly either fall or spring, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And we were just enjoying breathing some air. And then we see this really elderly man carrying a basket chock full of mushrooms, just to the brim with foraged mushrooms. And so we asked him, what are you doing? Where did you get those mushrooms? And he was a um, Lithuanian. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that ring a bell? No, I mean... You know this guy? <laughs> it's going to be an Eastern European. But um, and so he was very nice, and he 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 taught us how to look for mushrooms, how to um, identify this particular type of like some kind of button mushroom. I can't remember exactly what it was, but right at that moment, our whole um, perspective switched, and then the rest of the day we were looking at the ground for these really hard to spot mushrooms and we were looking at patterns and the way the light was hitting things and we were way off the trail like we were way <laughs> off until we would look up like when you're almost like when you're drifting out to sea and you look up oh my god look how far away I am <laughs> and all of a sudden we just we just it's like we were awakened to this whole other way of looking and seeing mm. I yeah I think that's really great when you can drop into it because there's like a, you kind of it probably felt like time expanded. And then you and your wife had this like um, interaction with each other yeah. that was new. Yeah, and, 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 and what you can do in half an hour when you have that kind of expansion is so much different than when you're just thinking you're dawdling and you're right. watching the clock or whatever. Yeah, there's other things that come... F- come forward with that and um um when you kind of when you can train into that you don't and I've observed people who can do this and um uh like their level of awareness of animals which is you know certain people are really aware of animals or they'll be really tuned into plants they'll be really tuned into mushrooms they know it's happening before it's even they feel it before they even detect it it's pretty. It's pretty interesting. It's like um, just when you, because you realize if you start training to like where those little mushrooms were, and you keep going back at that time of year and kind of just get skilled in that looking, pretty soon you'll just other things appear in your landscape because you're you're like quality air is about the same. It's about the same time of year. I'm going to go for a walk. Mm-hmm. It's kind of one of the ways that I go out mm-hmm. for my mushroom forays and I just kind of go out with this like really kind of tune the antennas on, you know, put the antennas on and then mm-hmm. just walk out in the field and do some very intuitive or sensing kind of 
and then you might look and you're like, okay, great. They're going to be around those, that species of tree, so I'm going to wander over there. But mm-hmm. then it's actually seeing them as, and actually finding them about around those trees or take a, a different kind of awareness, which when you start taking in all those different things, you don't even know you're taking them in. They're mm-hmm. just kind of there, and then you can just approach, and it looks like you're magically finding things. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, so I... <laughs> and- yeah, and I mean a different kind of outdoor walk, but ways mm-hmm. different ways of reading landscape um, is something that I'm very interested in doing. Maybe that's the answer to your question. <laughs> reading the, the landscape. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Reading the landscape. Yeah, being able to read <coughs> the landscape. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's the skill. What's your next question? Uh, what's your? I was going to ask you the same thing. Wow. But um, first of all, I'm sorry. It's a little chilly in here. I turned the oh, heater okay. off. So it's um, like my house. Yeah. Yeah, you said you had yours at 60. Yeah. Yeah. But I have a wood stove. Ah, nice. Nice. Uh, So I can just... Yeah. It's not that blowing air. No, no, no. I can just snuggle up to the wood stove if need be. Out of the land, but not at... uh, No, I have them in both places. No, I have a wood stove in Little Village, right by my dining room table. Cool. Very nice. I put it in. They're awesome. Yeah. And you're allowed to in the city. Yeah. I mean, I did, but I mean... If you're not allowed to, someone is now listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> you can heat hot water on yeah. top of. Oh, have a nice flat top. I can yeah. fry eggs. I love that. Heat tea water. Yeah. Nice. Oh, I'm having fire jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> no. Fire envy. I'm having fire envy. <laughs> um, maybe this will lead us into the ground rules a little bit, okay. if you want to talk about that. But we were just... You know, talking about awareness of land, and I was reading about the ground rules, and I was intrigued by this uh, by the motto, the Terra Fluxus motto. And so I looked looked that up, and it led me to landscape urbanism by this philosopher of land, which was a whole rabbit hole that I barely, yeah, (laughs) didn't expect. And so. What is what is landscape urbanism to you, or, or is that an intentional oh, uh, connection? Yeah. No, I'm not going to comment on that. Mm-hmm. I'll speak about bio-urbanism. But sure, let's talk about bio-urbanism. Okay. Um, bio-urbanism is a movement that has really taken a, um, a hold in Europe and parts of Asia, um, parts of the Middle East even. Um, they have all sorts of crumbling in, you know, infrastructure as we do as well. Everything's mm-hmm. kind of failing in our, our original infrastructure and we have to do a lot of rebuilding, but how do we rebuild smarter? Cause we design in ways that don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More highways. Yeah. It'll make <laughs> everyone get there faster. Yeah. Um, so, so. Is, is it an undoing or is it a, I don't even know, like a re- is it an undoing or a redoing or what is it? Well, it's so yeah. It's a it's going back to um, times where we had we actually had to be more responsive to what was happening outside of us um, in all sorts of ways. Um, we're pretty we're responsive in some ways to what our weather brings, but but still not. I mean, we, the biggest problem in the city and many cities is stormwater, which is basically. Mm-hmm. Beautiful rain from the heavens mm-hmm. falling on one of our cruddy hardscaping surfaces and 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 hated. Washing away. Yeah, and it hated. 
mm-hmm. for what it is. Oh, yeah, As, like, what are we going to do about this problem? Yeah, where it's like, it's called rain. We actually want it. We want to mm-hmm. be able to absorb it, and it's relatively clean compared to mm-hmm. a lot of our surface waters um, mm-hmm. because of ev- evaporation and and filtration. And, and, and so how do we use this gift of 36 inches of precipitation and how do we open up a landscape to actually receive it, make it more porous, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And receive it or store it in cisterns or mm-hmm. ways that we can um, be smart about using it as opposed to ways that we're always trying to get it away from our buildings. Rain gardens, yeah. you know. So you're talking about green infrastructure. I um, do Rain Ready, the Rain Ready program. Yeah. 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 Um, and so we're looking, you know, a lot of rain is coming up and into people's basements. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's really hard to have a love of um, water when it's coming into your basement. Um, but that's when the problem becomes real to you. Like yes. that's when homeowners are like, oh, maybe I should have an opinion yeah. about Water management, and that's, and that's when it comes back down to you were talking about community. Like if you're saying hello, hello to your neighbor, and you know your neighbor, you can say, "Hey neighbor, do you have basement flooding as well?" And then together you can like start. Maybe there's a at, pattern here. Yeah. <laughs> and then looking at solving, you know, there's so many things you can solve it yourself. You mm-hmm. know, you can put in the rain garden. You can disconnect your downspout. Yeah. Um, you can um, put in a bioswell. You know, there's just so many lovely things that you can do to get that beautiful water that we actually want mm-hmm. back out and, and down into the... So that's the, the kind of thing that you're, you're talking about there. Yeah. Even redesigning what's going on around the Chicago River, it's, it's very mm-hmm. high-end, it's very, like, lawns, and people Probably. go out there in their bikinis and <laughs> tan themselves as they as they read their phones they're not necess- or run their dogs on the space but more integrated ways of interfacing with our natural waterways that aren't just about a dumping effluent in from all those um, you know discharge areas along along yeah. the river if you ever kayak the, the Chicago River it's mm-hmm. pretty people keep telling me not to because it's you know I could mm-hmm. get something in my eye and, and you, can, <laughs> you can cut you can cut this bit out if you want but you go on the architectural tour and they're so proud of the fact that we changed the flow oh, yeah. of the river right. and to me I just thought it's one of the wonders of the world that sounds like the most ridiculous thing like why like why didn't you instead think, oh, let's not put all this terrible stuff into our river yeah. and leave it the way that it was? Yeah. Um, but instead, we did this huge engineering mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, look at me saying we like I'm yeah. an American. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you. It's okay, you're one of us. Yeah. Um, and so what they did is, you know, yeah. that huge engineering thing, instead of going, how do we instead keep, you know, all right. those years back and we've just been building and building on this the mistakes of the past of concreting things yeah. and, and disconnecting from our environment. And I'm so glad for people like you who are saying, you know, to us and to everyone and to your neighbour, let's bring it back. Let's let's reconnect to this environment, which is just so important to us. And I think it's uncomfortable because there are a multitude of issues and they're really uncomfortable to live with. Um but people are solving it with very short-term visions. Mm-hmm. It's like they're just um, they're coming in like a surgeon and just mm-hmm. getting rid of something, or even just you know. And I'm it's even bringing in a question like cutting down all the ash trees when the green ash borer has actually mm-hmm. jumped to two other species already, and they're still eliminate green ash. I'm like that's fine, but it's already in two other species, which mm-hmm. are in all over mm-hmm. Chicago. Mm-hmm. So cut a, go ahead, cut down all the green ash trees. Mm-hmm. 
but you're not but the bug's already moved on because you're focusing on a non an old problem and also a not integrated solution Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i think a lot of the biourbanism is trying to bring in a broader scope and a more multidisciplinary approach to how urban planning happens instead of urban planners at the table Mm. it's it's a lot of different people at the table so again, looking at what are what's at our periphery that we can't see because we've been specialized mm-hmm. in this one way, and yeah. we're really good yeah. at solving problems this way, but we haven't taken this into account. Mm-hmm. Which um, ties in really well to the ground rules, and uh, so ground rules is is kind of I guess a response to this idea of biourbanism. Like, how do you create uh, a new system of soil building? Um, in a community-based way, which is different than other like industrial kind of composting systems that exist now. Um, so are, are these, I mean, is it all like shovels and pitchforks or are there machines that are being used or what's the scale? Um, well, we have, it's also soil as a knowledge um, and community building tool. So we do a lot of education around soil and compost um, and work with a bunch of different um, institutions in the city, DePaul, uh, Garfield Park, and Conservatory and Neighbor Space, which is the local land trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, but we have, a, so at each one of our soil centers, which are sprinkled around the city, we have community partners um, based on where we're, we're set up. So we get invited um, to build out one of our soil centers, which is a place that we take our waste to and build compost um, at. We do our trainings there. They're usually in some kind of partnership with the community garden or urban agriculture site. And um, and that site gets all the resulting compost that we build. So we build mm-hmm. about 10 cubic yards per site That's at a, a minimum. Sometimes it's 15, depending on how active they are. Um, And we try to, even if we're bringing our abundant waste to them, we try to mitigate any surprises that show up in our piles, which are pretty frequent because people are enthusiastic and they just Mm -hmm. feel like they can dump 15 gallons of macaroni and cheese on top or something (laughs) and not cover it. And I'm just like, uh, we show up to a lot of crazy they're helping. <laughs> right. Um, that we try to mitigate. So between that and um, I worked on the compost ordinance for the city of Chicago. So I've been mm-hmm. I've been doing that for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to get people up to speed uh, with their compost because we there's people who want to compost in their homes but don't want to have worms or don't mm-hmm. understand Bokashi or Takakura or any other of these indoor methods. And so they want to be able to do that and if they're connected to community garden that's great and the community gardens need to do that at the end of the season or mm-hmm. if bumper crops or failures of the certain things it's nice to have some place to mm-hmm. break that down and feed it in and compost being a really really high cost so mm-hmm. if you can if you can regulate everything that goes in you know you're getting and you know how to process it through thermophilic methods uh, which are hot composting methods then you can reap all that Mm -hmm. so that's what we do so we get paid to put the bin in by that group and we get uh and we get to use that real estate and then they get everything that comes out of that those piles that's cool we also it's the idea of using compost as a a beginning point as a as the first tool Mm -hmm. to 
bioremediation. So we work on a lot of contaminated land issues because people mm. have soil fertility issues. When they're growing, but they also have contaminated land issues. And so we teach people how they can remediate their soils. Um, and one of the first first things is using microbes. And how do you have microbes? Well, best way to get them is learn about composting and and fermenting of um, different plant material for your anaerobic, you know, um, applications like comfrey tea, comfrey tea and nettles and all this, all these oh, kinds yeah. of things. Comfrey, yeah. So we we teach those methodologies. We layer plants into there, and we and we layer fungi as well. I think this is the thing that really blows me away is like the Renaissance approach to this that. You can't just install a composting system and expect it to work. You can't just educate people if there's no practice behind the theory. You can't have theories if you don't if you're not out there in the field doing it. It's like there are few people that I've run across who are like seem to be have their their sort of slice of pies and all those pieces pretty equally distributed. And I'm just I'm just blown away. And I oh. and I and you have like twenty more questions oh, you want to get out. Questions. And now I've got more ones about what's the difference between dirt and soil? Because you're very is it just semantics or you're very careful about saying soil, not dirt? Um, yeah, our next publication we just got funding for it. Um, our next publication is called Dirt Work: Recreating Coherence in Urban Soils. So, the one I just gave you, mm-hmm. uh, Ground Rules: um, Reconnecting Soil and Soul, is uh, is kind of the map of our processes and um, just the yeah the processes mm-hmm. that we follow in certain case studies in the city and then and then we're doing two other publications and this is on microbial remediation so we're taking that piece and kind of like opening it up and trying to get people more interested in in why compost is a vehicle to get bacteria out there mm. to help us with a lot of the issues that we have. The idea being that soil is living and dirt is... Yeah, and that, that's the difference. Soil yeah, soil is living and dirt is what you have in your clothes. Soil supports life. Yeah. But I am calling the second one dirt work. It sounds... I like it. Yeah, it's got it's a ring to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice final words. No, I want to hear Vanessa's questions. <laughs> I'm just, just going to read them all. Uh, a movie called Joe and the Volcano. <laughs> and it's starring Tom Hanks. And here's, uh, I haven't actually seen it, but there's this quote in it. Um, and, <laughs> and it's from his father. And he says, almost the entire world is asleep. Everyone you know, everyone you see, everyone you talk to. Only a few people are awake. And they live in a state of constant, total amazement and wonder. I feel like you're awake. How do you still, with everything that you know from, like this week you taught me that mushrooms are more connected to um, an animal than a plant. Um, That there's a, a relationship between bees and mushrooms. You know about composting and turkeys and like all this kind of stuff how do you still keep your sense of wonder with all of this information that you've got is yeah my to- sense of wonder is like non-stop and my sense of joy is non-stop but it's also paired with a, a fair amount of grief and anger 
and what I see going out there. So I would add to that quote, I would say, and pain. Mm -hmm. Because I'm more deeply affected when I see something that seems really unhealthy, like a really unhealthy approach to a problem, what people perceive as a problem, which isn't. Or, yeah, how people try to grow, even just even try to grow some food. I just, like, I just, it's just really painful for me. And I just have to go, well... But it's 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 hard. I mean, I have to like let a lot go that I see because it's so horrific. Yeah, it's so misguided. As well as things are like it's so delightful. I was walking my dogs yesterday on Thirteenth Street and love it right behind the FBI building. And uh, walking. <laughs> Great. Now we're going to be like flagged by the FBI. <laughs> Might get more li- listeners. <laughs> and a woodcock flew up, and then a second woodcock flew up, and I was like, they're nesting. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So it's such a, you know, th- those are the kind, that's what I get to, like, even in the city, that's like, I'm exploring these kind of, like, weird, weird landscapes. Like, what is she doing back there? And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, this is, like, kind of an interesting place to, like, mm-hmm. go take yeah. the dogs. The dogs find it really interesting as well. So we're walking around, and then that happens, and I was just absolutely thrilled. Being surprised by things or, like... Yeah, and wood, and American woodcocks are so... You know, this is their mating time, and they're really, uh, really fabulous, mm-hmm. dramatic birds. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I'm like, okay, now they're now I know that they're mating. Mm-hmm. Cool. cool. Or they were spying. <laughs> <laughs> one or the other. Right. Yeah. Hired by the FBI. <laughs> yeah. And then my last one is: Do you be- do you believe in magic? Uh, you know, everything's magic. Yeah. The mundane is magic. In fact, more magic than magic is. To hear more episodes featuring interviews with agriculturists, artists, and activists on the front lines of a food movement, and to read my essays on everything from zucchini to zen, visit dharmaonthefarm.com. Until next time, farm on.